as you're grabbing your seat, if you would grab your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 20 with me. Matthew chapter 20. So we've rounded the corner of Christmas, and now it's New Year's. Well, it's not quite New Year's yet, so you still have time to finish your through the Bible in a year reading. But for some of you, that means in the next couple of days, you're going to have to read an awful lot. (laughs) So like today was probably going to be Ezra through Proverbs. Just get next to the fire, a nice warm cup of coffee, you should be good to go. Um, Now, it's 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 an interesting time of year when... uh, the in-between part, you know? Everyone, so, so you're all wearing your, your new fancy Christmas outfits. Uh, you're trying to figure out what do you do for the next couple of days if you're not working? And if you are working, are you really working? Because nobody else is really there. Nobody's answering phone calls, all that good stuff. And it's just that, that awkward in-between time. And, and um, as a church, what I want to do is make sure that I, I celebrate. I did this once on... Christmas Eve, and I, I should have done it every service, and I apologize. We have um, an amazing group of volunteers here at the church and an amazing staff. And so the energy and effort that they put into setting up what was perhaps the most challenging of Christmas Eve services in the history of Uniontown, um, they are to be thanked mightily. And then turn around two days later and have staff and volunteers show up or church on Sunday, to serve you again. Um, I am incredibly thankful for those of you who are our volunteers and staff. Um, It is a joy to be with you, to serve alongside you, and to laugh our way through the things that we have no clue what we're doing. Um, one One of the benchmarks for us as a church staff really is, um, and I hope it never changes, the, the, the fear that at some point everybody's going to figure out that we have no idea what we're doing. But I think that's a beautiful thing for us because what's happening is God's just driving the ship and we get to go along for the ride. And so we're, we're excited. So I, I appreciate all of you. I appreciate you all being here this morning. Matthew chapter 20. Before I jump into our text, um, I don't, I don't know about you, I, I just recently had the opportunity to work on some negotiations, not for my pay here. <laughs> um, that'd be really un, uncool to be like, and I'm negotiating now, so if you all would support, that'd be weird. But um, I'm terrible at negotiations for cost and price for things, like buying a car, or when I travel, we would go to China, and their markets were built on the bartering system. I am awful. Awful. And if it wasn't for people who traveled with me that enjoyed doing those types of things, I would never have brought any, any little knickknacks home from my travels. No souvenirs because I'd never be able to purchase anything or I would pay like astronomical prices for them because I'm terrible at it. So, and maybe you're good at it. I did find out that my children are exceptional. So a number of years ago, they were at their grandparents' house, at, at Stephanie's parents' house, and um, my, grand, my grandfather, my wife's dad, their grandfather, was <laughs> sitting on the back porch and talking about how much he hated his pine cones. They were all over his yard. They were everywhere. He couldn't mow. They'd get stuck in the mower. They'd do all these different... I mean, it was just, they were just a mess. 
and he came up with this beautiful idea, this grand plan to have his grandchildren, who were younger at the time, and said, why don't you all go pick up pine cones, and I'll pay you per pine cone. Seems safe. A dime for every pine cone you bring me. Yeah, exactly. He didn't think that. He, he underestimated the number of pine cones, and he underestimated the, the fact that my children are, are greedy. <laughs> and so sure enough, the kids went out to the yard and came back, and my wife was sitting there. And as they're bringing back the pine cones, he's counting, and I think in his mind he's thinking like 15, 16, 17. Oh, here's a couple bucks. But he's up to 346. And my kids are like, yeah. And, and my wife is like, that's my inheritance. Each child was paid between 50 and $60. <laughs> and my wife tried to talk him out of it, but it was futile. Uh, because he, he, according to him, he made the deal. It's his money. Those are his grandkids. He can do what he wants. That's right. Some grandparents are giving me the hoot and hallelujahs right now. So today we're kind of going to look at something like that. Not necessarily the kids, but in the way the granddad reacted by giving the grandkids way more than they deserve. Matthew 20, verse 1. Let me read that real quick and then we'll kind of give you some background. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So, so let me give you a little backstory. It goes back to chapter 19. What, this falls within the context of this a very popular story, this rich young ruler coming to Jesus and, and, and in a very humble way falling before Jesus and asking one of the most sincere questions in all of Scripture, and it's this, what good must I do to have eternal life. So this young man runs, falls, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and kind of, we, we, we infer uh, that, that he's saying, because I, I don't know what the one thing is that I have to do, and I, what I do know is I, can, I, I don't have it. So what, what is it that I need to do to inherit eternal life. What good do I need to do? And Jesus says, okay, let's cut to the chase. Let's make sure we're using the same definition for the word good. He says good is going to be defined uh, on the morality of God himself, because only God is good. So if we can agree with that, then keep the commandments that God has given you. And the rich young ruler says to him, oh, great, <laughs> nailed it. I've obeyed all of those since I was a little dude. Now, now let's assume he's telling the truth. It's a pretty hefty assumption, right? I mean, that, that's a greater assumption than, did you clean your room? Yes. Perfectly. Sure you did. But let's assume the rich young ruler is telling the truth. He came to Jesus thinking he just needed one more thing. He wasn't sure what it was. Just one more thing. Because he was living that moral life, that good life. So I just need that one more good thing. So what is it? And the answer he got from Jesus wasn't one he was expecting. I want you to go and sell all of your possessions. I want you to give all the proceeds from that sale to, to those who need it. And, and then you will have treasure in heaven and then you can follow me. And, and Matthew tells us in verse uh, 22 of chapter 19 that the young man went away grieving because he had many 
possessions. What Jesus told the rich young ruler is this. The rich young ruler basically came to Jesus and said, okay, I got this sickness. What kind of medication can you give me? And Jesus said, you don't need medication, man. You need surgery. We're going to take it all away. What I want you to do is imagine your life without any possessions. All you have is me. Am I enough? And he leaves grieving. Because he had too much to give up. And then Jesus continues the conversation with his disciples, unpacks it a little bit, talks about how difficult it is for people who cling to their possessions because they've replaced God with their possessions, um, that, 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 that how difficult it is for them to leave those things and follow Jesus. And, and then the disciples ask the question, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with, with God, anything is possible. And, and it's in the middle of that conversation, Peter then speaks up, because Peter, Peter speaks up. That's who Peter is. And Peter speaks up, verse 27 of chapter 19. Okay, Jesus, so we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Now, do you hear what he just said? It's pretty funny. Jesus just said to the rich young ruler, okay, what I want you to do is is imagine life without possessions. All you have is me. Am I enough? And the rich young ruler is like, oh, man. And then Peter's like, hey, we did that. We got rid of everything. So what do we get? Do you see the irony there? And it's that question that Jesus answers because he's got to explain to the disciples your understanding of God's economy is completely whacked. So what Jesus does, he says, I'm going to give you a story about the kingdom of heaven being like seasonal employees who are hired to harvest a vineyard. Maybe this will help you understand. So let me read verse 1 again, verse through verse 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. When he went out about nine in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon, about three, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went out and found others standing around, and he said this to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because nobody hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard then, he told them. So, so here's, here's the, the, the basic idea. So this uh, landowner goes to the marketplace early in the morning before the sun comes up, um, and he's going to hire some some temporary workers to come help him with his harvest. This is not uncommon. This would happen all of the time. The, the, these folks would be hired to gather the grapes, to uh, guard the crop, to drive donkeys. In particular, during the harvest time with so much work, they would hire a number of them. Um, and, and it doesn't really happen around here very much, but where we were in Illinois, there were day laborers in front of Home Depot and Lowe every morning. And so if you had a wall that you didn't really want to do, you could just show up at Home Depot and be like, who wants to tear down a wall? And you could hire a couple guys for the day and they would come do the work for you. It's kind of that concept and, and, and that idea. It says the landowner went to the marketplace early in the morning to hire workers. So the, the, the idea is that the, the, the workday started at 6 a.m. So he hires these workers. He agrees with them on a wage of one denarius. One denarius. Now, that's not 
shocking. That's not abnormal. That's the average uh, day's wage. So, so there's really no, okay, that's profound. It, it just really is. That's just the deal. You get a day's wage pay for, for working a day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's the expectation, a 12-hour day. And so they go to his field and they, they work. And then it, it appears that he had way more work to do because in verse 3 it says, about 9 in the morning he came and there were others standing around who had not been hired yet by anybody. He says, you go to my field, do the same thing. I will give you whatever is right. I'll give you whatever is right. No negotiations, no terms laid out, just the landowner saying, I'm going to give you whatever is right. He does the same thing at noon. He does the same thing at 3 p.m. And then, verse 6, at about 5, and and I don't know what Bible version you have, but there's a couple of different ways to translate that. If you're going to translate it literally out of the original language, the Greek language, what that, uh, instead of it being about 5, it is about the 11th hour. It's a familiar phrase, sort of. It means the very last minute. It would actually be the 11th hour of the day. If you're going 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., the 11th hour would be 5 p.m. So he's got an hour left in his day, an hour's worth of daylight to finish the vineyard. He goes out to the marketplace, and there's still people standing around at 5 p.m. They have been there all day long. All of these other farmers and landowners have come to the place. They've hired the people that they need for the day, and these are the ones that remain. And so when the landowner comes, he is not showing up at the marketplace and seeing the most athletic superstars of the group standing there. We, we can assume that the ones who are left at the marketplace who had not been hired, who actually, in effect, had been rejected by every other landowner, that those ones are actually the weaker, the less athletic, maybe the ones with the history of attitude issues or laziness, but that they're definitely not the cream of the crop. And the landowner comes at the 11th hour and says, you go to my vineyard. And they go and they put in an hour of work. Then it gets interesting, verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers, give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. Okay, a couple quick things there. First, um, the the, the idea of paying them at the end of every day of, of work implies that these were very poor men. Uh, in the law, both in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15 says, don't take advantage of the poor and destitute labors. You must pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and they are counting on it. Leviticus chapter 19, 13, don't defraud or rob your neighbor. Don't make your hired workers wait till the next day to receive their pay. They need this money. They gotta, they gotta be able to put food on the table and without getting their pay at the end of that one day of work, they're not gonna be able to pay for the food. So you don't hold that money. You give it to them at the end of their shift. And then there's this interesting uh, approach that the the landowner wants to take. He says, I want you to take the ones, the 11th hour ones, and I want you to pay them first. That means everybody's still standing there. First shift, second shift, third shift, fourth shift, and the 11th hour workers. And let's keep reading verse 9. When those who were hired at about five came... They each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, they just assumed they'd get more. But they also received 
a denarius each. So you get the, the 11th hour workers, the 5 p.m. guys who worked for a single hour, they're paid first, and there is this shock that settles in as the landowner decides, yeah, I'm going to give you a full day's pay for working for one hour. And everybody standing around makes the assumption, that must mean we're going to make paid big time bank on our day today. Because we put in 12 hours. What generosity he showed to the one-hour worker, the 12-hour worker is just going to be given money, fistfuls of money. I mean, there's a huge contrast between the, the work accomplished, between the guy who started at 6 a.m. and the guy who started at 5 p.m. And yet, <laughs> they both received the same wages. Feels like a scandal. And it, it certainly felt like a scandal to those who worked the full day. They make it known. Look at verse 11. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. That word complain means to grumble. Um, I do this in here a few times a year just because I think it helps us understand the Bible understanding of grumbling. So if you would all do me a favor, all of you say the word grumble five times. Ready? Go. And that's exactly how they were talking. I can't believe you only gave me a denarius. Why'd you only give me a denarius? I worked a 12-hour day. So they continued to complain and grumble to the landowner. Verse 12, these last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. They have done so very little, and yet you made them equal to us. We, we bore the burden. We worked through the heat. We put in the 12 hours. They, they worked for an hour, and it was during the cool of the evening. And so they bring this complaint to the landowner, and it's important that we understand they are being factually accurate. Nothing they are saying is wrong. It's exactly what happened. But look at the landowner's response. Verse 13. He replies to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Then take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first last. Landowner's response is, friend, I, I, I owe you nothing. I have fulfilled my contractual obligation. I have paid you the agreed-upon amount. You've not been cheated. So take what's yours and go home. This was my desire, my will, my wish. This is what I wanted to do, to take what is mine and give, and give it as I see fit. It's within my rights, isn't it? This is my money. I can do whatever I want. That's granddad saying, hey, hey, hey. My money, my grandkids, I can do what I want. See, the only complaint that these employees had is that the landowner was too generous. Imagine complaining about that. You're just too generous to them. Why weren't you generous to me? So there's this tension in this story, isn't there? So here you go, okay? Now, everybody loosen up a little bit, relax. Okay, honest evaluation. 
Who do you feel for most in this story? Which characters or character do you like that that's, they're right. They're okay. That's who I am in this story. I'm that one. How much do you think, if you were the land, how much do you think that the 11th hour guy should have got paid? Or how much do you think the first shift guy should have been paid? Think about that just for a second. (laughs) And I can tell you, most of us in this room land on the side of the first shift workers, right? I know you're like, it's a trap. I am not saying yes. (laughs) We do. We all land there. We hate things that don't seem fair. We hate things that don't seem fair. There, there is nothing, this is a weird statement, but, so, but buckle up, this one's going to be a little tough, ready? There's nothing more unequal than making equal someone who is unequal. That's deep thoughts, Frank Taylor. There's nothing more unequal than making equal someone who is unequal. So we stand there, and I'm going to tell you right now, one of the things, as we shared this in staff devotions this week, that really popped for a lot of us was, we stink at celebrating somebody else's good fortune. We are such selfish people that when somebody else succeeds, instead of it being like, oh, that's awesome, praise God for you, instead it's like, why didn't I get it? I wonder if that happened in any of our homes yesterday. Why didn't I get that? Why did they? So we need to do better at celebrating when others have great success or are given great gifts. We tend to see ourselves as the first shift Christian. We tend to see ourselves even as Peter did. Listen, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you, so what will there be for me? Many of us sitting in this room have been doing this and living this way for a long time. So it's natural for us to kind of slip into this mentality of, well, I deserve. I mean, I, I, what do I get for giving up so much time? What do I get for sacrificing so much? What do I get for working in the nursery? What do I get for being an elder? What do I get for respecting my husband when it's very difficult to respect my husband? What do I get for intentionally loving my wife when she is most unenjoyable? What, what, do, what do I get for being mocked by my friends and coworkers when I make a stand for Jesus Christ? What do I get for leaving everything? Come on, Lord, what do I get? Maybe you did give up a lot to follow Jesus, and that's to be honored. But don't slip into thinking that God owes you something. That's the depravity of, of modern religion and our hearts I do so that God will give to me. So God owes me. And and I'll tell you, he does owe you. But do you really want what God owes you? (laughs) This very clear scripture teaches us every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us rebels against God. We are born as sinners. So both by nature and by activity, we also make choices to sin against God regularly. So we are in ultimate rebellion against the creator God of the universe, the holy God who said that he will rain his wrath down on his enemies. Do you really want what God owes you? 
We, we can't stand before God clinging to our accomplishments and merit and sacrifices like it's going to purchase his favor. God owes us nothing. You've been given a generous grace not because of your good work. You've been given a generous grace because of your good God. He owes you nothing. And while I think many of us gravitate towards the idea that we are the amazing first shift employee, as Peter would have put himself in the story, in fact, we're not. I think that's what Jesus was trying to communicate to Peter as well. You, you see yourself as a 6 a.m. kind of guy. But when it comes to what you actually deserve, no matter how long you've been a Christian, you, you my friend, are a 5 p.m. guy. You've not been given generous grace because you've given up so much. You've been given generous grace because he gave up so much for you. Even though he knows you. He, he, Jesus Christ gave up heaven to be born in a manger to go to the cross for you. And, and, and even before he was born, before, before the foundation of the Lord, he knew you, yet he still came to die for you. He knew you'd struggle. He knew you'd struggle with sin. He knew that you would struggle with lying. He knew that you would be a thief. He knew that you would struggle with laziness. He knew that you would wrestle with porn, that you would be marked by anger. He knew that you would be a gossip. He knew that you would struggle with promiscuity. He knew you would be arrogant. And knowing all of those things, he still chose to go to the cross for you with an offer of generous grace. Because that's how God works. He delights to show mercy to the 5 p.m. people. He delights to show grace. He delights to save and to pour out his immeasurable riches of grace on us through Jesus Christ. And he's willing to give you that grace as a free gift. Not one you can purchase, not one you can earn, but a free gift that you simply have to cry out for. And Jesus, save me. I need your work on the cross to be credited to my account, covering my sins with your righteousness so I can stand before God. That's a gift of generous grace. Guys, it doesn't matter who you are. You're an 11th hour employee who's been overwhelmed by the generous grace of a good God. If, if I'm going to take this passage and boil it down to a simple sentence, it is this. The God who owes you nothing gave you everything. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Father, thank you for your good word. Thank you for your good grace. Thank you for your generosity. Lord, we, we do. We, we fall into the trap of thinking that we, we sure are something. And in reality, we aren't. You are. And everything we have has come from your hand. Most importantly, our redemption, our rescue. Father, we can have this conversation with you because of Jesus Christ. We don't deserve that. 
So, so Lord, I, I do ask that you would give us the proper perspective, that we'd be reminded that because of your generosity, we have a standing with you. Because of your grace, we have the forgiveness of sins. Because of your son, because of your son, we can come boldly into your presence. So, Father, may we be grateful and encouraged by what it is that you've given to us that is so very undeserved. For it's in Jesus' wonderful name I pray. Amen.